The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Innovation Movement Arrives for MDS, Guidance on Building Personalized Management Plans to Improve Patient Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EEX 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to the Innovation Moment Arrives for MDS, Guidance on Building Personalized Management Plans to Improve Patient Outcomes. Tonight, panelists are Dr. Gail Robos, a professor at Wale Cornell and a world leader in leukemia and MDS research and treatment, and myself, Guillermo Garcia Manero from the MD Anderson Cancer Center. So over the last uh, 20 years or so, we have seen slow but chronic therapeutic progress in malodysplastic syndrome that we think is accelerating. So we go back to the 70s, people were interested in understanding cytogenetic alterations in this disease. Then in the late 90s, the IPSS by Dr. Peter Greenberg was uh, proposed, and this became our guide for many, many years. And then in the years 2003, 5, and 7, we saw the approval of three consecutive agents. First, esacitabine, followed by lenalidomide for Del5Q-MDS, and then the cytabine. In those days, I was a junior faculty member at MD Anderson, and I thought we were going to be approving a drug uh, for this disease every year, and we were going to finish the job and cure our patients, uh, let's say, in a decade. Unfortunately, this really stopped in terms of drug approval in 2007 until a couple of years ago. That said, during these 10 to 14 years, we saw actually very significant improvement in our understanding of the biology and the molecular pathogenesis of this disease that resulted on a number of things. For sure, improvement in the cytogenetic classification of this disorder, and then most importantly, in my opinion, the application of new next-generation sequencing techniques for patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. Of course, we have learned a lot more, and we have a lot more ideas about what causes this disease, perhaps how to prevent it, and perhaps, hopefully, how to treat it better. Finally, in 2020 and 2021, we saw the approval of two new drugs for our patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. The first one, the TGF-beta inhibitor, Luspatercept. Dr. Robos is going to talk about this a little bit later. And then in uh, 2020, we saw the approval of uh, this oral decitabine cetazuridine combination that we think is a nice and important adjunct to the therapeutics of our patients. Today, in 2022, we're really investigating uh, uh, in a very aggressive fashion, uh, multiple doublets for patients with high-risk disease. And we have a new number of varieties, uh, single agents uh, of investigational agents for patients with lower-risk uh, disease. Now, despite these recent advances, it is obvious that the disease is extremely heterogeneous and that we really need to develop better risk-adapted uh, therapeutic approaches. In other words, not all treatments will work for every single patient. So we know that uh, uh, this is not the most common uh, uh, disease, but it's not uncommon either. And we know that this is an aging uh, uh, related disorder. So we expect that the incidence of this disease will increase. And we have developed actually new tools like the Connect Myeloid Disease Registry that are allowing us in real world type of data to understand what actually are the problems that affect our patients. With that uh, small short introduction, today's or tonight's agenda is as follows. We're going to cover new developments in modern diagnosis and prognostication for patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. And we're going to have a case-based discussion on selecting personalized treatment for patients with both low-risk and high-risk MDS. Let's start with understanding modern diagnostic and prognostic standards for our patients. And I would like to bring this case first to uh, Dr. Robos. So you are asked to evaluate an older patient that presents with anemia. 
So William is a 70-year-old man presenting to his primary care physician with fatigue, dyspnea, pallor, and then initial testing, of course, confirms this anemia with a hemoglobin level of around 8.6. After additional evaluation, you refer this patient to a hematology oncologist. They perform additional testing. They found an SF3B1 mutation in their bone marrow. In addition, there's also some morphological changes such as 10% ring steroblast and 4% bone marrow blast. So the questions for Dr. Robos are, should this patient have been referred earlier or did anemia plus current symptoms prompt an appropriate action? And second, how do we confirm a diagnosis and establish a prognosis? Gail, can you give us your simple view about this problem? Yeah, no, I think, um, first of all, thank you for the uh, for the welcome and so happy to be here. And we get to, to spend an hour talking about um, what we like to talk about, which is MDS. And William and um, his initial presentation, we see a lot, but actually the internists see more. And I think one of the things that's important to note is that um, people are often, you know, MDS is rare and there are a lot of other things that can cause fatigue, uh, fatigue and shortness of breath. And what I find actually is that sometimes it takes a couple of visits for people to even get a blood count done. So it's worth it to listen carefully to the patient. Is this somebody who is an active runner who always runs the same amount and now can't? I'm pretty quick to do a blood count, but given what I do, I guess that's not very surprising. But I feel like that 8.6, it's certainly possible that 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 could have happened suddenly, but it was probably drifting down. And I guess my point is to listen carefully to the patients because I frequently see that people who have a hemoglobin of 10.8 or 10.5 are told that it's age or that, well, you know, we'll recheck it again in a year and six months. And I do actually think there is an opportunity to evaluate um, patients who are symptomatic for anemia promptly, there are also lots of mimickers for MDS. And you're going to talk about this, I think, in a subsequent slide, but MDS is the kind of great pretender disease, and there are all kinds of deficient uh, vitamin deficiencies. There are other confounding factors that, um, that need to be ruled out. And then, of course, the obvious things that cause anemia with respect to being up to date with a colonoscopy, with bleeding, et cetera, to make sure that you're not missing um, very clearly uh, fixable causes of anemia or intervenable upon causes of anemia. Now here, I think in the initial, uh, the additional testing, what this is going to is that we don't want to just make an assumption if all of the other stuff is not panning out that again, it's it's not age, it's that you got to go ahead and do the diagnostic test. And I think that bone marrow biopsies, um, they're not pleasant, but I do think that sometimes an, a bigger deal is made about them than necessary. And I think it is now market and required that there is next generation sequencing sequencing testing, as well as a full cytogenetics panel. If you're going to do a bone marrow biopsy, get all of the workup done. It's an unpleasant thing. You certainly don't want to have to do it twice. And I think for this patient, you're going to have a morphologic, um, a very strong um, a criteria being met for MDS, as well as an important mutation was identified. Thank you, Gail. I totally agree with you. So let's talk about the diagnostic criteria and differential diagnosis of this disease. So we talk about cytopenias. Uh, there's some criteria saying hemoglobin less than 11, ANC less than 1,500, thrombocytopenia defined as less than 100,000. There's also what they call decisive uh, criteria, uh, meaning 10% uh, or, or more than 10% dysplastic cells in one or more lineages, increased blast from 5% to 19%, 
an abnormal karyotype that could be uh, classic for maladysplastic syndrome or evidence of clonality. We will be discussing all this as we move through, through this talk. Things that are very important to uh, exclude are, of course, vitamin B12 folate deficiency. This is something that at least I don't see in my context. I think this was more frequent in the past. I'm not sure in other countries or, or cities. Actually, very interesting in my practice at MD Anderson, we see very few HIV patients. We used to see more than 15 years ago. I don't know why, but I think maybe in other uh, uh, urban areas or other situations, this is something very important. And actually, I have seen many patients in the past with HIV disease that totally mimic a dysplastic uh, uh, bone marrow. So this is very uh, clear. There is the rare case with copper uh, deficiency, not the infrequent case of alcohol abuse. By the way, sometimes this alcohol, in my experience, may not be the cause, but for sure contributes to the severity of the disease. So this is something to keep in mind. There may be medications that are associated with this process. There's a significant overlap with autoimmune conditions. So these are actually difficult because sometimes they are part of this syndrome, maybe not uh, something that you will exclude. And then in younger patients, of course, congenital uh, syndromes and other hematological disorders, such as aplastic anemia. Uh, occasionally you will see a hairy cell leukemia that is being confused uh, 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 with this issue. That said, actually this brings a point and Gail and I work in top uh, tertiary centers with a lot of expertise, but occasionally you see discrepancies from one pathologist to another. And sometimes a second opinion is warranted just on the morphological diagnosis of this uh, uh, entity. Now, I'm gonna discuss in the next couple of slides, something that is complex to me that I have not fully digest. And uh, I hope that we have time for discussion or this will follow up with some time. Of course, the World Health Organization or the WHO mandates internationally how we classify these disorders. I'm sure all of you are familiar with the blue book that we all look when we are not really familiar with particular disease. And periodically a group of experts, and I'm not in any of the two classifications I'm gonna talk about, maybe Dr. Robos is, they have basically uh, modified uh, or updated some of these criteria. And I think this is now gonna create a little bit of confusion. I'm not sure that Dr. Robos and I are gonna be able to solve this problem tonight. And actually we don't even have the time to go through this. So my goal here is just to alert you that there's now a little bit of two classifications coming with no total uh, concordance and then some changes. So this slide shows the updated uh, WHO 2022 classification. My understanding is this is a democratic process, it's positive somewhere, and you can go and complain and protest and try to uh, modify it. And it's basically, in my opinion, a very good effort because it incorporates what we need. That is this issue of new molecular data and new cytogenetic entities that probably are nosological entities in themselves. So I think this is really a, a, a proper, uh, and I support a majority of these changes here. And again, I don't really have time to go through each one of them. Now, in parallel, there's been a, a new effort that is actually a, a group that has uh, uh, separated from the original WHO classification that has proposed a, a, a kind of more different uh, classification than what we had before. And it's based on this concept that perhaps blasts are not uh, important in this disease anymore. And there's been kind of a proposal here to decrease the number of blasts that will call patients in general acute myelogenous leukemia. Now, the full premise of this is based on prognosis. And I might be, and I will be interested on in knowing what Dr. Roberts thinks about this, is that you know, you could have two tumors with the same mutation, but that doesn't mean that colon cancer with a P53 mutation is the same thing as pancreatic cancer with a P53 mutation. 
And I think these uh, patients with MDS and AML are actually different. In my opinion, many of them have a different cell of origin. They have different morphology. And for many years, as far as we know, we diagnosed them as such, not just by counting blast. So I find this uh, a little bit uh, difficult to understand that because they have the same kind of prognosis, we have to give it the same name. But that's my own bias. Of course, we need to see how this evolves with time. And I will be curious to see what Dr. Robos uh, thinks about these uh, two classifications. Gail? Yeah. So, I mean, look, this is very important to bring up because I think that for clinicians um, in the audience, this this is a headache. Because so what are the what are the important things that we want to know? So the first thing is we want to make sure that we can um, alert uh, doctors who are sitting in the office with patients that certain things are MDS, uh, not AML or and 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 here you have a blurring of the line. So you used to have a patient who would come into the office and say, oh my God, thank God, I only have 19% blasts. Um, I don't have AML. But here you're going to have one diagnostic classification that is calling you MDS slash AML and another one that doesn't introduce the term AML. So just strictly speaking from a clinical perspective, I think this is going to be a little bit hard if one person says you have MDS IB2. Nobody really knows what that means, but it's a lot of letters that don't include AML. And then the other one says MDS slash AML for the exact same thing. I just worry about some angst there, but more importantly than angst, I worry about things like clinical trial participation, because how are we going to work on developing new drugs? Which one is it? None of us wants to deny a patient access to an excellent new therapy because they have 19% blasts instead of 20, or we we all struggle with this, but I do think that there are um, very big, both for the patient and for the clinicians and for clinical trials, there are very strong um, concerns about having two simultaneously or essentially simultaneously released classification schemes. This is actually in a large MDS meeting that I was recently part of, although I am not part of these particular committees, we actually put together with um, a lot of experts a paper specifically highlighting the differences and coming up with some concerns about what is the problem with having these differences. And actually a little bit of a call to action to ask everybody to maybe solve this problem and not have two classification systems, but have one, or at least provide some guidance about what is to happen to the poor patient and the poor doctor sitting in the office trying to figure this out. The one thing that I would say is that there are a couple of things for docs to think about. For example, if you have an NPM1 mutation with MDS, so that's uncommon, but it's a whole different type of MDS. It's a much more aggressive disease. MD Anderson, I think, led the world in publishing some of their experience and some of those patients actually behaving in an aggressive manner. So there, you don't need a classification system. You need an updated slide deck like this one saying, if you see an NPM1, don't blow it off if it's an MDS. It's not quote unquote, only an AML mutation. Or if you see an inversion 16, but you have 11% blasts, that doesn't fall into the category of don't worry about it, it's not AML. It's the same disease. So I think the use in clinic is to understand the diseases that have immediate treatment implications, things like isolated NPM1 and MDS, or even with concomitant mutations in MDS, um, things like inversion 16 or core binding factor abnormalities to make sure that clinically you're getting the patient 
patient on the right path. And then to kind of help the patient not get lost in the weeds of sort of what are these blurred differences between MDS and AML and maybe call, I have a New York patient population, they read all the articles before the fellows do. So they come in saying, well, wait a minute, this classification has me looking like this. This one has me looking like this. What do I do? I think we need to just be on top of that discussion and sort of uh, be very helpful to the patients about understanding that what is a distinction without a difference, honestly. Thank you, Dr. Robos. I think we're going to hear more about this. I think this is a little bit of complicated issue and maybe kind of self, uh, you know, injury that we, with a good intention, we are now making this very complicated. And as you will see next, it's going to be even more complex as we now really are doing what Dr. Robos is saying, for instance, with the example of the MPN1, where we have more robust molecular classifications. As I mentioned in the very first slide, you had the chronology of discoveries. I think really what has helped us in the last decade, I will think by now, is a number of papers. This is one of them by Dr. Papa Manuel, at, now at Memorial in those days in the UK, at the Sanger Institute, I believe, in, in Cambridge, where uh, these investigators started to basically analyze the, what I call the molecular cartography of this disease. In other words, what were the frequency of mutations? What was their correlation? And this data has really changed how we, at least I understand this disease. So this is a map that shows the frequency of mutations. Of course, the most common is the splicing uh, related uh, gene that controls the splicing, SFTB1. Then we see genes like the two that we know are very common in aging and clonal hematopoiesis and so forth. Now, what you see at the end is that there are some genes that are not that frequent, but that we think actually are important in this disease. And this is where it gets complicated because the question is, are these each one molecular entities or, or not? Probably not all of them are going to be, but they are going to be important. And if you pay attention to this graph, there is a detail that is really important to me. That is we thought that the uh, molecular testing, the next generation sequencing testing was gonna supersede cytogenetic analysis. In other words, looking at gene mutations covers what a chromosomal alteration is. But actually, in fact, it does not. And we're gonna see a couple of examples uh, later on. So you see here, Del5Q, trisomy 8, I think somewhere else is Del20. So these big structural changes that are the cytogenetics, they actually cooperate with this molecular data. So we are not gonna abandon actually cytogenetic analysis anytime soon as far as I understand, because I think biologically they may tell us uh, different uh, uh, things. Now, important thing, and I don't remember if Gail was at this uh, meeting in uh, Scotland in Edinburgh in one of those MDS meetings, but I remember very well when uh, um, this mutation was first presented by actually Dr. Papa Emanuel, and that was one of the first genes identified. We had no idea how important this gene was gonna really become, and then we're gonna hear a little bit later from Dr. Robos. But this is, of course, the most common uh, or most frequently mutated gene in this disease. Now, like everything, there are some tricks. Apparently, there is a variant called the K700E uh, the mutation of this gene that is actually the one that is really associated with good prognosis and ring sideroblastic anemia. But this is the most common molecular event in this disease. And it happens to be associated with type of MDS called ring sideroblastic uh, uh, anemia. We'll talk about this later. So this very important international effort that, by the way, was just recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine Evidence, a new very important uh, uh, journal uh, was just published. And actually this uh, tool to prognosticate our patients is actually free uh, for anybody to access in the internet. And this, cap, this slide basically illustrates how it functions. So on the left here, you have the traditional criteria, BLAST, hemoglobin, platelets, the ANC, H. So this is very straightforward. 
Then, of course, the cytogenetic data. So, so far, this is identical to the IPSSR, but the innovation comes in the incorporation of the molecular events that these patients uh, have. And we're going to be discussing this a little bit in more detail, in particular regarding P53 uh, uh, in the next few uh, minutes. That said, when you put all this data together, what you see is that you can then you know, divide these patients into these six groups, very low, low, moderate, low, moderate, high, high, and very high. And not only you can give a name, the tool actually gives you an actual number in terms of survivals and expectations that you can share with your patient. And I think this is the best prognostic data that we have right now, extremely democratic. You just need to have the molecular annotation for your patients. I think this is a major actually uh, breakthrough that is gonna help us understand past data and future data, very important uh, uh, analysis. So with that, we're gonna move into bringing innovation to the management of lower risk MDS, now that we understand how we divide our patients. So let's go back to our patient. And we'll ask uh, Dr. Robos to uh, give us an answer and, and give us her ideas in terms of the treatment of these patients. So William, that is our 70 year old male patient, now presents with a confirmed case of ring sideroblastic maladysplastic syndrome or MDS-RS. He has the most common mutation, the CEF3B1. He has 10% sideroblast. He does not have an alteration of chromosome five, has an EPO level of 450. And the treatment will be maybe considered here an erythropoietin stimulating agent with or without myeloid growth factor like GCSF. And of course, with all the supportive care needed, meaning red cell transfusions. So given that the patient has initiated an ESA therapy, what is, the, what is an appropriate monitoring schedule and what constitutes an adequate response? This sounds superficially trivial. I think this is actually one of the most important questions that we're dealing with our patients right now. Dr. Robos. So I absolutely agree with that. And I think that, um, I think that in general, when you're thinking about these, um, when you're thinking about these lower risk kind of patients, the first thing that you want to do is try not to hammer too much therapy. You want to see what what can I do to get if the if the primary problem is anemia, what can I do to improve um, the anemia, but without necessarily having the patient go on to uh, therapy that is going to keep them in the doctor's office all the time. And that's kind of an important point when you look at a case like this, um, because the application, for example, of growth factor therapy in the United States is not so simple. Um, you take a look at this, you say, okay, well, it's a relatively high um, EPO level, but not astronomically high. The ring sideroblasts are something that often triggered people's memory or mind maybe more years ago than currently, but you thought, okay, maybe this person is going to be more responsive to dual um, cytokine therapy because of the ring sideroblast, but then you actually try to give it to the patient. And it's hard because does the insurance let the patient give it to themselves at home? Are you dragging somebody in following a guideline of once a week or of twice a week, or if you're giving a concomitant myeloid cytokine therapy, the guidelines, which I'm going to show you in a moment, are actually for twice a week, but that's a headache. And these guidelines were actually developed um, uh, ex-US and Scandinavian countries where the patients were able to do a lot of this at home. But the case here, what you want to try to do is get the patient onto a schedule of, um, if, you're, if you're trying an ESA, plus or minus a cytokine, that is giving 
giving that eight to 12 weeks of response, you want to give it a chance to work. But what I see all the time is that patients get started and then months and months and months and months and sometimes even years go by without any particular response. And the patient is kind of hanging out or having slightly worsening anemia. And the question is um, when to when to switch therapy and when do you have an adequate response, I think is also um you got to get away from looking numbers on a page because one patient's hemoglobin of 8.6 means a great day and they're going out with their grandkids and having a good time and feeling really well. But for another patient, the exact same number means that they can't get out of bed and they feel short of breath and they can't possibly go to the grocery store. So I think there is a lot of personalization for for individual patients, what the numerical hemoglobin and hematocrit mean, A, and B, there is a very big difference in responsiveness to transfusions. And I'm sure that, um, that you see this all the time at MD Anderson too, that you can have one patient who gets one transfusion that seems to last for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then another patient who two weeks later needs another transfusion. And sometimes it's actually related to the blood product itself more than to the disease. So how do we deal with all of this? Well, let me take you into, actually, you know, I'll toss this particular slide back to you because these are actually your data. So take us through what do we do for risk-adapted therapy um, to make sure that we're not over-treating some of these patients. Thank you, Ken. Actually, this is just a summary I put together. This is data from a lot of people. But I think what this schema tries to say is, first, what we already spent almost half an hour, that is defining the entity, what lower-risk disease, and what I try to tell you, the molecular, cytogenetic, et cetera. And now what we are going is from like this kind of only therapy that we had for many years, cytokine-based therapy, to perhaps more. And things that we had today, some of them are more or less exciting, but uh, this is what we have as part of the NCCN guidelines, for instance, are interventions such as iron chelation, growth factors, that is how we started this conversation. Next uh, concept is loose patercept, that was, as I mentioned earlier, recently approved. In North America, actually very interesting, the use of hypomethylating agents for lower risk disease. Perhaps the best defined entity is Del5Q minus MDS with lenalidomide. And then this is not, I'm not sure how commonly this is known in the community, but the subset of patients with what we call hypoplastic malodysplastic syndrome that benefit from like a plastic anemia-like therapy like APG, cyclosporin, although there may be some controversy around this. And of course, what Gail and I do all the time, I prefer to do, that is to treat patients on a clinical trial. And then finally, there is also quite a bit of debate and uh, questions around a role or lack of role for allogeneic stem cell transplantation in patients with lower risk disease. And I totally agree with Dr. Robos that this needs to be personalized, that we cannot really assume that this uh, transplant is not uh, a go uh, for any patient with low-risk disease. And we're going to be discussing this in the next few minutes, Gail. Thank yeah, you. I think, I, I mean, I think that's just such a, you know, it's such an important point to underscore that, um, especially with the new classifications that um, uh, that you discussed, the IPSSM, which has a very low risk. I mean, from a patient perspective, again, you're telling very low risk disease, low risk disease. I, I haven't met a patient who doesn't think that means they're going to live forever. That's what translates into. And yet we see very frequently that in a patient who was initially diagnosed as a lower risk patient, once if the anemia is getting 
worse, if they're cycling through therapies that aren't working, I think it's very important to realize that actually that that hatched line to allotransplant can go to the lower risk box because it is totally possible to have a lower risk patient whose survival is negatively impacted by the fact that they've been now through multiple therapies that are not improving their disease. I think the initial approach to isolated anemia remains growth factor support. Um, An ESA is part of the MDS um, anemia treatment guidelines. Um, you know, I think that they they work for some patients, but they have relatively limited efficacy. They don't last forever. There is a loss of effect over time. And certainly one has to be aware of um, transfusion risks. I think that um, iron overload, while not typically the major reason for um, morbidity and mortality in patients with MDS. There are subsets of isolated anemia patients who do, in fact, become quite iron overloaded over multiple years of many transfusions. The RARS group is in that category, the SF3B1 mutated patients who sometimes do have prolonged transfusion needs. So, I mean, I think we need to, I think we need to think about that. But the bottom line is that um, that most, um, most patients who are getting an ESA with um, transfusion transfusion support ultimately will need something else in their disease. I will mention here that a lot of doctors who are treating MDS, which is a rare disease, are used to treating many, many, many more common solid tumors. And the issues for using ESAs in solid tumors are quite different actually from us. And there are worries about things like getting to a hemoglobin of 14 or 15 or or a progression of solid tumor malignancies, other things that are quite different in the MDS space. I don't think I've ever had a patient go to a hemoglobin of 15 or 17 with an ESA um, in MDS, that's kind of considered a high-class problem for us. But in general, the thinking about the ESAs, I think, um, for doctors who aren't used to treating um, MDS is actually kind of a challenging space. So you've got epitin, you've got darbipoetin, they might um, improve anemia, reduce transfusions and improve quality of life because actually patients are quite compromised by their, um, by their anemia. Gets back to a point I made earlier about not being married to numbers on a page. You really have to ask the patient what they can and cannot tolerate in terms of a level of, um, uh, a level of hemoglobin. Here, I think the combined therapy with myeloid growth factors, I'm going to show you on an NCCN algorithm um, that uh, that. That, that is something that actually can work for patients with um, with rinsideroblast, but it can be a bit cumbersome um, to give. And here you, you do want to maintain the lowest level of hemoglobin. You don't want to be getting into that hemoglobin of um, 14 or 15 or 16. It's not going to happen. Don't worry too much about it. But you'd like to try to get the patient as transfusion independent as possible. Now, in terms of uh, primary resistance, so we know this, that if you're, you know, if you're starting out with an endogenous EPO level of 700, it's very, very unlikely that EPO is going to work. It gets tried anyway. And I have to say, a lot of times, I think that gets forgotten as a baseline assessment parameter to check an erythropoietin level. And if you check it the week after you give the patient their first dose, it doesn't count because that's obviously influenced then by the therapy. But if you know that the patient has a high EPO level and a large transfusion burden, we already know in advance that it doesn't mean you can't try it, but it's not likely to take you to um, anywhere great in terms of, of therapeutic benefit. Fit. You know, if you have less um, uh, disease burden, fewer transfusions, and a low EPO level, which is not, frankly, the majority of, a, of MDS patients, but that's where this is most likely to have the uh, the best um, benefit. 
So here we have now our patient who's got an SF3B1 mutation. He's got, he's treated with his um, ESAs. He's going to, he's getting his transfusions. But now after 14 months of therapy, he's got an increase in his um, transfusion requirement now up to three units a month. So that means he's coming into the office um, almost every week and ending up with a transfusion. So would you call this patient ESA refractory? And now what are you going to do with him? Thank you, Gail. So this is, very important in my opinion, because we had these ESAs now for more than two decades, actually close, close to three. And I think these drugs are very well tolerated. But in my opinion, I agree with a lot of the things that uh, Dr. Robert says. Number one, these are not trivial. They are expensive and they are potentially demanding for our patients. And second, you know, I've spent the last 10, 15 years just thinking about this disease. I to this day, don't 100% understand the true benefit of these compounds unless they work in the first few months of therapy. So it's not uncommon in my practice to see people that have clearly failed uh, this kind of drugs uh, that are on it for like a couple of years as an adjunct to whatever therapy, let's say a hypomethylating agent or lenalidomide, et cetera. So we really needed kind of better drugs to stimulate erythropoiesis. And I think the key question is, when do we call a failure on ESA? Is it three months, four months, et cetera? And I think we need to start thinking about how to define this more strictly. I think that someone has been 14 months on therapy and now has even more transmission requirements. This is a failure. We need to do something better for, for these patients. So today, actually, this patient has renocerovastic anemia, has an S3B1 mutation, is needing second-line therapy, the standard of care, is this compound known as Luspatercept that was approved, and we're going to see this data, I believe, pretty soon, based on a very well-designed phase three registration trial known as the Medalist trial. The other approaches like lenalidomide, HMA, these are things that we could do perhaps at some point later on. There's a lot of dynamics here, but the standard, in my opinion, will be Luspatercept. Yeah, I think that this has really been, I mean, you highlighted it right from the beginning of the talk that this is one of our recent approvals. And I think that um, the the uh, the clear message of don't hang out on an ESA forever because it should be considered necessary for MDS, for every um, uh, uh, MDS patient to, to be on one no matter what else is going on. I think that makes a lot of sense. Here, okay. The the other thing I think you know on this guideline, I think it's it's useful to note, by the way, and this does happen that for patients who are hanging out on an ESA forever and ever, they actually do get iron deficient um, potentially, and that's something that gets um, strangely overlooked because it's kind of like the iron deficiency workup is that from the beginning of the diagnosis, and once they have MDS, everybody forgets about that. It can happen, but I think here, if you look at these guidelines, and I'm going to walk through very quickly, if you don't have a Del five or other cytogenetic abnormalities and you have rings and you have a serum EPO level that's low, um, uh, less than 500. The recommendation here is for um, EPO plus GCSF. This, you can see it, it, it takes a long uh, box to, to um, describe this, but it's dosed one to two times a week, sub Q plus the other one, one to two times a week. This is this can be complicated, honestly. It's difficult to achieve. Patients don't want to be coming back into the office a couple of times a week, but not every bit, not everyone in the US um, is able to get access to this at home. And also the self-injection can be problematic. For high EPO levels um, to, to come out the door, I think that um, in an ESA failure, um, that loose patercept is going to be um, is going to be strongly considered. 
and specifically in an SF3B1 mutated patient with ring sideroblast, which is a subgroup in which lispatercept has been particularly effective. I think that's going to be what we jump to immediately upon hearing a case like the one that we just did. Now, this is interesting. Um, it's an interesting agent um, because basically the, the theory is that um, most of the ESAs are acting on early stage erythropoiesis, but here lispatercept is supposedly acting on late stage um, erythropoiesis. And it's a it's a fusion protein um, that basically acts as a ligand trap to run around and grab uh, members of the TGF-beta uh, superfamily that are circulating and inhibiting um, uh, the development um, and differentiation of these late stage um, uh, erythropoietic um, uh, progenitors. And the inhibition of SMAD23 signaling is supposedly what allows the, um, the, the red cells to grow up and develop into what they are supposed to. Um, and I think that it's an interesting mechanism of action. I personally am extremely curious whether they're going to be ultimately data that um, could be useful for osteoporosis too. That's kind of part of the original mechanism of action that was potentially interesting and not part of the not part of the uh, label in any way, but there are an awful lot of MDS patients who have that too. So it would be cool if there would be a benefit. That said, this mechanism of action um, has led to um, actually. Um, uh, a very, as was alluded to, very well-designed trial called the Metalist trial, where there were pretty obvious, you can see here from the graph, um, improved uh, uh, transfusion requirements with many of the patients actually becoming transfusion independent. And these data have been um, shown to be durable. They last um, over time. They don't last forever. So this is not something that people are going to take as their only therapy forever. But there are highly durable responses in an agent that is well tolerated. And I think that, um, you know, I think that uh, reduction in transfusion burden in every possible way that you look at it has resulted in both improved quality of life and improved survival. The mechanisms of improved survival are, are um, subject to debate, but certainly um, whether it is uh, iron overload or whether it is myriad other issues that are related to increased transfusional burden. It is better to have less than to have more in terms of transfusion requirements, and this drug gets you there. It's well tolerated. There's no free lunch in medicine. There's no package insert that has no side effects listed on it. So, um, I mean, I think in general, the number of patients who actually had to um, get off the study in terms of things like fatigue, diarrhea, nausea was low. They're not zero though. And particularly in the first few administrations of the drug, we definitely have patients who have had some mild GI um, issues that usually sort themselves out, but it's not zero. So I don't tell patients they're going to feel nothing. And then the other thing to think about is, um, is hypertension. And that is something where um, I think that uh, what you want to consider about this agent is two things. First is that there is a dose escalation plan. And if you look at the package insert, is it worth it to follow the instructions and don't forget to dose escalate? There are plenty of patients who are being referred um, for not having responded to lispatercept, but they never actually dose escalated. So I think I would absolutely, for right now, the best thing um, for a recommendation is to follow the package insert instructions. We may have clinical trial data showing that that can be accelerated or changed, but for right now, follow the instructions. And then the second thing is the hypertension management. And I think, you know, MDS is primarily in an older population. There are plenty 
of patients who have hypertension or who might be on five other drugs for hypertension. I think the recommendation of monitoring blood pressure prior to each administration is actually one that can be annoying in clinic because sometimes I get the call that, oh, the patient's pressure is high. Should I give the agent? Well, you know, most people after being aggravated in, in, in your office or mine after, you know, waiting too long for an uh, administration or having something else irritate them, I'm not sure that an isolated hypertension measurement in the doctor's office should prevent you from getting your drug. But that said, there are patients who do have hypertension. And when they say they, they may forget to tell you that they've gone to their internist or cardiologist and all of their medication needed to be increased. So you do want to watch out for that and make sure that the benefit that they're experiencing from the drug and that the improved hemoglobin um, and the reduction in transfusion uh, requirements is kind of being balanced with anything that is going on on the blood pressure front. So I think here what we want to know is, okay, well, this sounds really good. What about moving this up front? Is this actually better than what we've been doing with ESA um, alone? And here the phase three commands trial is um, is looking at this with the, um, with the idea of a head-to-head trial in a phase three um, uh, design, looking at this versus what is our current standard of care and seeing um, if it is better. And if it's better, Better, I think that that um, will there will be a, a significant data set then to make that swap. I think it's also worth um, noting that for some of you who treat uh, myelofibrosis, which is not the same as myelodysplastic syndrome, but there are fibrotic MDSs and those uh, path reports can be confusing. But there are also emerging data su- um, suggesting a possible benefit for lispatercept in myelofibrotic patients as well. So I think that is worth um, watching. Now, what else can we do for these patients? with lower intermediate risk disease. I think um, lidomide is a, is a very interesting agent. It has been on our radar now for a long time. And I think that very clearly the standard of care for, uh, for patients with um, especially isolated deletion 5Q with um, anemia, there are actually eye-popping improvements in hemoglobin with this agent. There is where you can see that patient go from an eight or a nine to a 14 hemoglobin. I think this is one of the reasons why years ago we were advocating so strongly not to deny our older patients a bone marrow biopsy because some of those patients actually had a deletion 5Q and had a massive improvement actually in their um, in their hemoglobin and their quality of life that would have been missed had they not had a bone marrow biopsy. So I think this led the way in saying, never mind that you're 85, do a bone marrow biopsy because maybe there are things that we can do for you that matter a lot. But here also, um, there, are, uh, there are patients without a deletion 5Q who uh, respond to lenalidomide. And some of these patients, it was about a 24, 25% response rate um, for lenalidomide alone in patients without a deletion 5Q. And then these data came out, which were interesting about adding this agent um, to to patients who had had um, ESAs who were EPO-refractory. These are non-DEL 5Q patients. And there appears to be a... um, a restoration of sensitivity to the ESA by lenalidomide, which was actually um, significant. There are interesting mechanisms behind why this might be the case, but some of these patients actually were able to kind of get back onto their transfusion independent or much less transfusion dependent status by putting uh, putting these two um, together. So that is something to think about. 
Um, and I think in terms of other directions, um, we have new things that are coming. I mean, the, the question is going to be, you know, what can, what can we do about dosing changes or combination therapy with lenalidomide that's different from before? Um, Imetalstat is a very interesting drug that had that's a um, uh, affecting telomerase that is um, has emerging data as a yet another different mechanism of action for patients in ESA refractory disease. Um, and my colleague um, is working, has been working very much in the ascertained data showing oral decitabine, again, in a different um, a dosing schedule. So actually lower dosing, not lower dose, but a different schedule, a three-day type of a schedule might actually be enough for some patients um, uh, who have um, isolated uh, anemia and in the uh, absence of high-risk disease. And then looking at lispatercept plus lenalidomide. And all of these things are important and develop because unfortunately, nothing here lasts forever. So these patients are going to become uh, resistant to what they're on. And the question is going to be to learn what the sequencing might be that is important here, because perhaps if we understand the mechanism better, we can sequence these drugs correctly so that the next either single agent or combination can restore sensitivity to whatever was done prior. So I think that's going to be some very new um, uh, directions. And I think putting all of this together is that we are in a better space than we were. I was kind of in the same point in my career early on when we had the um, AZA and decitabine first come out. And I thought, oh, this is great. MDS is done. I'm going to be able to wrap this up. Didn't feel that way for a long time, but we do uh, We do have new kids on the block now that are looking better. And I think the IPSSM, um, again, is going to be kind of a standard daily thing in everybody's uh, office for sure. I think, though, the problem is that there's a lot more to MDS. And when you have an office full of MDS patients, it's amazing because here at least all the patients talk to each other and everybody with MDS feels like they have a different disease completely from whoever's sitting next to them in the uh, in the waiting room because this has such protein manifestations. And here we, we certainly do have some challenging patients with high-risk um, disease. And I think that um, the, the TP53 mutation kind of blazes in front of one when that report comes back as something that we kind of go, uh-oh. And I think um, I'm going to give this uh, back to Guillermo to present and to take us into the land of the really tough to manage um, MDS patients. Thank you, Gail, for fantastic uh, summary. So let's go to this next case and maybe discuss the high-risk disease. So William is a 70-year-old male that now has a high-risk MDS according to this IPSSR classification. There's an okay performance. He's anemic, 8.6. And you refer to hematology oncologists. They do this bone marrow test. And there you find poor cytogenetics, meaning high complexity, basically three or more abnormalities. And as it happens in a majority of these patients, a mutation on this very important gene called PP53. So the questions that I have to Dr. Robos are, how well does the IPSSM align with the IPSSR for high-risk disease? And what will be the treatment options for this very difficult group of patients? Transplant, no transplant, hypomethylating agent versus something else. And what about clinical trials? Gail? Yeah, so I mean, this takes us into the land of, um, you know, of really, really, really difficult management because there are, we have a lot of options 
but our options aren't that great. So the first question about the alignment of the three classifications or the the um, IPSSM with other prior classifications, and don't forget we have IPSS and then we have IPSSR and whether or not you include the age adjustment. I think one of the slides that you have up and coming is going to show, um, or maybe it doesn't, but when you use the online calculator, actually it gives you all of them. It doesn't only give you IPSSM, you get all of the different classifications and it is mind-splittingly difficult when they are not the same and they are not always the same. And they um, there are reasons for that and you can explain to the patient what the reasons are, but it is incredibly jarring to a patient to see, I have now had my data plugged into a calculator and I now have at least two, if not three different risk stratifications. The second thing is that I think that TP53 mutations are not all the same. And there are TP53 mutations that if you go into ClinVar or if you go into the databases and if you actually look at what they are, there are some which have very different prognostic implications from others. And I bring this up because in the setting of poor cytogenetics, we are always talking about a very difficult disease in MDS. But I just had this past week yet another patient who didn't look to me to be that bad. And there was not that much going on. And the patient had a um, TP53 mutation without um, uh, complex cytogenetics. And when we did a database search, this was actually one of the TP53 mutations that had not been particularly associated with bad things. You also want to look at what is the variant allele fraction, or do you have a VAF of 52%? Is this something that is potentially constitutional, or do you have a VAF of 1%? This gets into the complexity of TP53. TP53, which makes me think that TP53 is like a crowdsourced thing. Call your friend. I call you. We call each other. Are we sure that what we're dealing with is, is a bad one? In this particular case, in combination with complex karyotype, that usually is going to be leading to difficult things. And unfortunately, stem cell transplant, which we still say is the only curative modality for um, MDS, does not cure the majority of patients with TP53 plus or minus complex karyotype. In fact, it cures very few of those patients. Nonetheless, it's almost irresistible for young patients and a very well 70-year-old would still fall into that category that it does come up for consideration. And then it becomes a really complex discussion with the patient. Are they willing to take numbers like 7% or 10% or really, really low probabilities of actually getting cured of the disease and trekking through what is um, invariably a nasty thing to go through in terms of a, of, um, a stem cell transplant? So here we are wanting wanting, wanting novel agents and novel clinical trials. But before we get to the clinical trials, I think we have to, you know, talk about in somebody like this, um, what do they actually? What do they actually come out on the risk calculator? So Guillermo talked about this um, already, and I think that um, uh, you had wanted me to address specifically the TP53 question. So you talked about panel number one. Anybody can do that. Put in your blast. Put in your neutrophils. Although you'd be amazed how much people can mess that up too. Then you put in your cytogenetics. It cues you. By the way, the risk calculator actually tells you what falls into these categories. So don't take a guess because it might be different from what you think. Look at the little box which tells you how to correctly do this. And then when you get to the mutational data, you'd think you're going along so well, and then you get this loss of heterozygosity box, and you're looking at your report, and it doesn't say anything about loss of heterozygosity. 
activity. So that's a reminder that you want to be looking at, for example, um, a PCR or fish data or something that is looking for whether or not you have, um, whether you have 17 or whether you don't have, whether you have 17P, whether you have a deletion of 17P, that information is going to be embedded in the, usually in the cytogenetics or PCR part of the report. It's not in the mutational part of the report. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit more challenging to figure out. But once you do all of that for this patient, you are going to realize that the patient is in fact um, in trouble and is going to land on this portion of the algorithm, which is for high-risk patients. Um, and um, I think I'll toss it back to you here. I forget when I'm supposed to toss, but what are we doing in terms of transplant? This is a the transplant um, candidate part of the slide, given the fact that we know the TP53 mutations actually don't have great outcomes in transplant, irrespective of whether the patient's a candidate, a good candidate physically. Thank you, Gail. So very important, this P53, because again, one of the most fundamental genes uh, with high level of complexity. So let's move now to high-risk MDS. I think the questions that we have today are actually complex still. Question number one, who is a candidate for induction therapy, AML-like, whatever you decide to do, or HMA? Most of our patients likely candidates for an HMA-based therapy, the most commonly used is a cytidine based on famous ASA001 trial. The second question that keeps evolving is the role of transplant. Of course, we are now learning how to molecularly annotate this. We have data from Dana Farber, other places, suggesting, for instance, high rates of P53 uh, associated uh, relapses post-transplant, as uh, Gail was saying. And then this opens the question of what do we do post-transplantation. So this is now evolving into really personalizing based on age, molecular, and what do you think the patient may tolerate, whether you have a donor, not that today most of our patients uh, have. So I think most of us agree that we want to induce a best response and we want to consolidate this with a transplant. And in high-risk patients, we want to try to give some type of maintenance post-transplant. So in summary, I think this is how I try to approach these patients in my place. Now, we have had these hypomethylating agents, both esacitidine and desitabine, for a long time. Now, as Gail mentioned, we have this oral desitabine, cetazuridine, that probably the main advantage is that it's not an injectable hypomethylating agent, so we can do oral daily, 40 days, five days. So this is something that is also an evolution and we're looking at total oral therapies for our approaches. But the reality is that the HMAs, whatever you use, still are the backbone of what we are using in our practice for a large majority of the prototypical high-risk MDS patient in the mid seventies. And now we're starting to look at doublets. In the earlier slide, there was a mention to a drug called Pebonidostat. That actually shows you the difficulty of doing this big, large randomized trials that uh, we perhaps were naive originally a few years ago in terms of how their design uh, is uh, supposed to be in order to be uh, successful. We can discuss this as we go through these uh, uh, slides. And then we go into these new doublets that are being tested actually in uh, uh, phase three trials as we speak right now, although they are ready to, to conclude. So for instance, going back to the P53, there is potential data from a very innovative compound known as magrolimab, that is an antibody that targets something called CD47, that is basically related to immune checkpoint, but for macrophages, not for your typical T cells, that apparently could be agnostic of the mutation. So the idea is these macrophages are not part of the clone, so they don't really need uh, that particular mutations are not affected. And this could be very attractive because this could be a doublet that could be effective in this context of P53 mutated disease. So data presented by Dr. Salman 
and, and others in both in uh, uh, multi-center studies have shown high level of activity, both in the wild type and importantly also in the mutated uh, uh, subset of patients. Now, this is a doublet that is under active uh, investigation. And indeed, actually, there is a study known as the enhanced trial. This is the phase three trial comparing in with or without uh, maragrolimab for patients with high-risk MDS, whether they have the mutation or not. This is a very important study. It's ready to close accrual actually anytime soon. If I was going to redesign the study, perhaps I would have separated the P53 from the global population, but again, very attractive, very potentially important uh, combination that we're going to be hopefully uh, learning uh, pretty soon in terms of its global impact on overall uh, uh, survival. There are other forms of, uh, of uh, 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 therapies that are very effective or attractive to us. Of course, uh, the most commonly used one outside clinical trial, I would think, is actually the combination with uh, Benetoclax. This comes from the AML data that Dr. Robos and many others like Dr. DiNardo uh, uh, here have developed based on this uh, randomized study in AML uh, comparing isocytadine with or without Benetoclax, the famous Viale study. So here we have basically replicated this in a study that is known as the Verona trial. The study actually uh, has completed accrual, and it's a study where we have used isocytadine with or without Benetoclax. This is a very well-designed uh, placebo uh, uh, randomized blinded study that is going to be potentially very important. Now, there are issues because there are some ideas that perhaps venetoclax is not that effective in P53. So that could be an area for the immune therapy that I described uh, earlier. And uh, there may be some subsets where this drug uh, combination is very, very uh, effective. One message that I want to give here very quickly is that please the schedule that we will use if this drug ever gets approved is different than that in AML. And sometimes in my practice, I see patients with intermediate risk MDS that are treated with long exposure to Benetoclax that may not be uh, uh, optimal. The other forms of immunotherapy, one that is has triggered interest of multiple trials known as a stimulus, both in MDS and AML, is the use of this TIM3 antibody known as salvatolimab. This is actually very interesting. It targets the stem cell, also the T cell compartment. And our experience is that it's very well tolerated as opposed to other forms of immune therapy that you're very familiar with, like ipilimumab, nivolumab, et cetera, that they have some type of uh, toxicity profile. And then their second generation, actually CD47 antibodies, an example being Ivorparcept, but it's too early really to discuss uh, with any uh, uh, clear idea what the activity of that compound uh, is. So basically, in summary here for high-risk MDS, and similar to what we talk uh, in, in low-risk MDS, prognostic models are very important. The mutational profile, very important, particularly for P53. You're going to make a lot of decisions in terms of chemo, no chemo, the role of transplantation or not. And then hopefully we pray that some of these doublets, either with Magrolimab or with Benetoclax, and we didn't really discuss in detail this uh, drug called Tamivaritin that is approved, I believe, in Japan for APL, but actually targets this retinoic acid uh, 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 pathway that apparently affects a significant subset of patients. And there is a study now targeting this molecularly annotated uh, uh, potentially subset of patients with this drug. So we may actually have positive data that we have not discussed in a lot of detail that is now coming from a lot of uh, past work over the last decade. So we still have three, actually four, uh, if I'm counting correct, major randomized trials that could be informative, that could provide with a doublet that could be hopefully potentially better in terms of overall survival compared to single agent uh, uh, hypomethylating uh, agent. And this is actually what I would like to see in the next couple of years, that we not only have better drugs for low-risk disease, 
if I can go back for a second for uh, the low risk data, I think that will be very exciting actually to have new drugs that really promote better erythropoiesis in our patients. And then in high risk disease, I would love to see a better doublet that improves the survival. I think that Gail and I will be basically fulfilled somehow academically if we saw that in our, our own academic life. And we have worked together for many years and I've always enjoyed this. So I really think that the community is really looking forward for that kind of uh, results, either from Verona or Enhance or whatever uh, doublet that we have in the next couple of years. So to summarize what we have been discussing the last hour, I uh, would like to propose summary and ask some questions to uh, Dr. Uh, Robos. So the first one is, does adding newer targeted and immune-based therapies to chemo platforms for other cancers increase the risk of secondary malignancies like MDS? Gail? Yeah, I mean, I think that's so. The, the consequence of living longer and doing better with other diseases, unfortunately, does actually put people more into our office. But I think the specific question here in terms of targeted and immune-based therapies to chemo platforms is difficult to dissect, right? Because what is it that is driving secondary malignancy or uh, whether it's MDS or AML? And here, the chemotherapy is known to result in um, those secondary effects. And it's hard to separate out whether it is specifically the addition of the targeted therapy that does that? Or is it that you're just living longer because the combination works better? There are all kinds of things, though. I mean, I'm seeing lots of patients treated with PARP inhibitors, for example, who land in my office. There are all kinds of other drugs that are in the solid tumor world that are putting people more into um, the MDS office. And I can say, um, in particular, that with um, with uh, solid tumor patients just having more options and living longer, we co-manage a lot of these patients sometimes who will have, for example, a concomitant therapy-related myeloid neoplasm or MDS with metastatic ovarian cancer or with metastatic breast cancer. And we do both. And actually, the patients can have some meaningful and good survival with good collaboration. I'm, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. I totally agree with that. So the other very important question is, what is the optimal duration of treatment with Luspatercept? And should treatment duration be individualized based on response? I think with Lispatercept, as with the ESAs, we get back to a point that we were trying to make earlier, which is that these are not therapies that should be continued forever if you're not responding. And I would say in Lispatercept in particular, due to the dose escalation, you want to make sure that the patient has an opportunity to respond to dose escalation. And one can quibble a little, a little bit over the exact number of weeks. But if you are at a final dose escalation and you have 8 to 12 weeks beyond the final dose escalation and there's absolutely nothing happening. I don't see much uh, role for continuing indefinitely. Do you have that practice or what do you guys do? Oh, I totally agree with you. Also, we didn't really discuss this, but this is very important to us because we're developing very expensive medications, not only in MDS, let's say ALL and, you know, of course, CAR T cells by specifics. So the question is, how do we efficiently use in the best fashion, these expensive, very effective therapies. And I think the message is if you use them outside the proper context, you're wasting a lot of money. So for instance, in the case of Luspatercept, I think that those patients with lower transmission burden probably benefit the best. And I think that's why commands is gonna be very exciting. And therefore, perhaps transitioning earlier will be very important. This is when the drug is really gonna work. And then at the other side, if the patient is heavily transmission dependent, is not really responding even to the higher doses. The question is, is this cost effective? Because there is a pharmacoeconomic uh, toxicity from, from this compound. So I totally agree with you. 
So, Gail, I'm going to describe to you a very common situation that I see in my clinic now all the time from, you know, the community referrals. So, 72-year-old patient with high-risk MDS treated with esacitidine and venetoclax and did not have any response at three months. Should the therapy be continued? Should you refer this patient for uh, reduced intensity uh, hyperidentical transplant? What do you do in that situation? This is very difficult for me. Yeah, this is, I mean, so this is this is the core of every day in the clinic. Okay, so a few things. 72-year-olds can be fabulous or less fabulous. So we're going to need to know a lot about how good a 72-year-old. High-risk MDS comes in many different flavors. What makes him high risk? Are we talking about a complex karyotype, increased blast? Where are we? That's going to impact the answer. Treated with azacitidine and venetoclax and did not have a response at three months. I find that I, I am seeing all over the map what that means. Sometimes that means venetoclax at 100 milligrams for five days, 400 milligrams for 23 days, 400 milligrams for 62 days. That needs so much unpacking when I get the consultations in of what did they actually get? How much ven did they actually get and for how long? And some of the patients come in having had 50 days in a row of venetoclax and pancytopenic and they're coming in for no response, but they actually have a blown marrow that needs time to recover. So I think there's a lot of unpacking here to do, but if you have a healthy 72-year-old and truly has not responded to good dosing of azaven with appropriate intervals, that patient should be considered for a stem cell transplant. And whether or not there is additional chemotherapy or what's going to be given to the patient so that the transplanters are going to take that patient, because in our place, they're not taking somebody with 12% blasts and MDS right into a transplant. They're going to want us to apply some magic to try to, quote unquote, fix the blast counter, make things better before a transplant. I agree totally uh, with you. And I think also the point that you're bringing up that we did not discuss, but is very important is coordination with the transplant team. So I refer my patients earlier. I'm not in a position as a leukemia doctor to judge who is a transplant candidate or not. And this is team effort that should be highly individualized. And with that, Gail, I really want to thank you very much for uh, this time together. It has been really interesting to me. I hope also for the audience. Always fun. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EEX 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb.